Welcome to Culture Plan B. I'm David Jubb and I'm excited to welcome you to the seventh episode of Culture Plan B and our very first guest episode, which means the episode is produced and edited by guest contributors. Culture Plan B set out to meet with artists and communities who create culture outside big cultural institutions, like most people do. Today's episode is created by Stand and Be Counted, which is a resident company at Theatre in the Mill in Bradford. The theatre company formed in 2010 and in 2016 it became the first theatre company of Sanctuary. I didn't know much about the company's work before listening to their episode and I am bowled over by what they do. They are an inspiration. I want to live in a universe where the leading cultural figures are the kinds of people who are interviewed in Culture Plan B. These are people who serve the communities they work with. They create a world which is less about offering access to the arts, less about art as a model of consumption, less about giving opportunities for us all to admire great art and more about inspiring everybody's creativity, growing ideas, confidence and artists in every community, more about hope, optimism and change. And don't we need a big dose of optimism right now? After you have listened to this episode, if you're looking for even more inspiration, then just type Alan Lane blog into Google and find the entry titled Bootprints in Butter. Take it as a Culture Plan B recommendation for a completely inspirational read. Please, arts funders, arts educators and arts journalists, let's find more ways to support more of this work. So this episode is introduced by Esther Richardson, Artistic Director of Pilot Theatre, who is on the Stand and Be Counted Steering Committee. She will introduce you to Rosie McPherson and John Tomlinson, who founded the company, and interview lots of members of this amazing collective. Enjoy. I think let's all just take a deep breath, shall we? (sighs) Like it. Very sad. Very sad. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm here this afternoon with Stand and Be Counted, the most fantastic theatre company um, that I have the great privilege of sitting on the steering group for. And I'd like to go around. So who have we got in the room? Hello, my name's Rosie McPherson. I am the Artistic Director of Stand and Be Counted. Hello, I'm John, Exec Director. Hello, I'm Hannah Butterfield. I'm Associate Director. Hello, I'm Munya. I'm the producer. Hi, I'm Indigit Burgle. I'm founder of City of Sanctuary. Um, I'm Trevor and like Esther, I sit on the steering committee. Hello, I'm Smart Bander and I am a partner in collaborator with SBC Theatre. I'm also a designer and filmmaker. Hi, I'm Ruth Vitalo and I'm a creative assistant. Hi, I'm Taff. I am a collaborator and partner with SBC Theatre. Stand out legend. <laughs> My name is Emily Wood and uh, Wood. I act with uh, SBC and uh, heavily involved with them. Whatever they do, I follow them day or night. <laughs> so, Standard Encountered was started in 2010 by myself and John Tomlinson. We were essentially two graduates of Salford Uni who were actors 
actors who kind of felt a bit locked out of the industry and like maybe no one cared who were what we had to say we were definitely activists and wanted to be making work that was felt useful and was adding to conversations that pushed us forward we wanted to have more control over the work that we were able to take part in i actually have a quote from a participant in a workshop today that i think just sums up what the reason SBC was started was because we didn't know where the door was to knock. And one of our participants today said, I am the journey. I am the one that builds the door to knock on. And that was most definitely setting up SBC was we know what we think makes important theatre and we know the value of theatre. Uh, let's do it ourselves. And so we've been making work for the last 10 years in various capacities as a theatre company of sanctuary, which means that we are specifically focused on work with, about and for refugees, asylum seekers and people new to the UK. And it's very important that those people lead on projects. Uh, they are centred in the work, they're experts by experience and the skills that we have as a company facilitates people to have their say in the way that they want to say it. So we have touring work, we have workshops, education strands, we'll do studio tours around the UK, we'll do outdoor large-scale projects with lots of different communities across the UK or internationally. Um, what else do we do, guys? You give people the platform to be themselves or to be who they want to be. The reason who they have forgotten themselves, who they were. And uh, you give them the platform to live again. I'm very proud to be a member of Denton Be Counted and utterly delighted with the new programme of work to reflect their style and passion and commitment, make bold work with sanctuary seekers at the heart of their process and their work can, I think what's important for me, really amplify their voices and enable listening from those who need to hear it most. We're living at a time in which everything seems to be about separating us and isolating certain people and what's important is to enable those who are most isolated to feel more connected than ever. What do you think needs to change in terms of the, the way things are structured and funded and the relationships between people to ensure that more we see more of this work? Clearly there are all kinds of financial constraints at the moment. Uh, lots of people are competing for small pots of money. Uh, I'd like to see funders prioritising uh, support for uh, work alongside those who are most vulnerable. Put that more at the centre of your work, and we, we need we need that at this uh, at this difficult time. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about general well-being of people seeking sanctuary in this country. It seems like where we are needed and where we are pulled to are the places where there are gaps, and so therefore there's a really interesting um, conversation about you know like the arts as an industry and how it's funded and like this kind of stuff when it isn't 
when it isn't social care and it isn't um because it's it's like that thing that dance does really well where like there's such a relationship between like for example um general well-being and mobility in elderly people like like the, the relationship between that as a social problem and dance yeah. feels like it's been well it's a well established practice whereas what we're doing here in in terms of filling those gaps like for example ESOL classes are available but maybe there are lots of reasons why that's not working for some people therefore enter this kind of work and I mean that in terms of like not only like that's why we need more support um, but also that's why more people should be doing this kind of work but there isn't a way to do more of this work because those doors aren't open. There's an underlying secret understanding that theatre and the arts do uh, make up that you know if, if statutory support is on housing then where's well-being where's confidence how do we properly support people to integrate and learn a language arts courses are you know there are statistics from our own projects that we know that massively enable people to integrate to find their first job in the UK to contribute to society if they feel better about themselves they are more able to attend appointments and follow the process that they're required to um, which then undermines hostile environment this should be statutory because it makes such a big difference but until it is what do we do about making sure that we all exist because at the moment we, it does feel a bit on the edge of the ethics behind all of these companies disappearing isn't just regardless of what you think of theatre it's this is a lifeline for people this is something that is desperately needed and needs to be supported better and it feels and like that conversation starting but it's a bit um it's like there's a bit of a delay and now it's needed more than ever as we've as we've experienced as a company who's in some ways never been as busy as we have been over the last six months yeah. in terms of um, opportunities for projects and being asked to um, to participate in things and being asked to advise on things. Those kinds of ways of thinking are not new. We've been doing this for a hundred years, but it's kind of like given the, given the urgency of it and given the lack of actual tangible support for it. And I'm not just talking about SBC, I'm talking about all of the, um, other companies who are in the welcome consortium like without these tiny companies doing this work so much of this stuff just doesn't exist and the reason we made the welcome consortium in the first place is because there was no support for people who were doing this kind of work in that really local way I guess it's making me think about what is our responsibility as a company to for the next generation of theatre makers to say okay that's our model for doing it the kind of um uh, touring theatre company version that we have sort of done but there's also all of this other work and there's all this other um areas of practice where perhaps the work that that kind of work is more needed now more than ever or it certainly sort of feels like that in this particular moment while some of these big discussions are happening the reasons that we had to get busier whether there was funding or not was because asylum seekers refugees migrants were completely forgotten in this pandemic completely disregarded visas were stalled but people were threatened with deportation even though they weren't allowed to continue their process asylum seekers who are on five pounds 35 a day were given 26p more and that was it 
every 100 people, one person in the world is a refugee. There's like 25 million refugees, and that's people who have the status. That doesn't include people as asylum seekers and don't have that. This is a huge issue for the world. People who are already in limbo, on pause, not allowed to work, not allowed to socialise, not allowed to engage with the world around them, who already know what being in lockdown feels like because they are there were the ones that were completely forgotten and actually were the ones that led us through this because they were the ones that coached us on how to live like this there wasn't a choice that we that we could make about um turning off any of our engagement projects during this at the start of it there wasn't a choice to be had it was very much we are trusted by groups of people across the country that we're working with and we therefore have to find some ways to, to figure this out. We know we can't get to Coventry or Bradford or Sheffield in the same way we, we were at the time. But what we what we needed to do was just ask the question, how how best now can we support you? Because we know that the resources that you have from other organisations that you would normally get also aren't there. How best can we support you in lots of different areas? But also you can lead us in terms of the way you want to help build a participation project on Zoom. So quite quickly, we, we became a company that knew how to Zoom, do Zoom participation, not because we came came up with a strategy just because we asked the questions of people that we were working with and they just laid it out really clear for us. The other side of that was that we we don't have the same pressures in terms of um, buildings and a, and a set kind of concrete about where we are at any one time. And that's been built up over 10 years that we've we've gone across the country to, to do. But it, it, it meant that we had always been training almost for a moment where there would be a shift. And as a company, we are very used to working on um minimum things i.e we'll need some wi-fi um for a day and we could probably communicate and plan a project and then suddenly everyone was doing that and we were like oh we, we've already figured out this zoom thing participation and we've already figured out how to work as a company across three or four or five or ten different places because we've always done that more creative spark that we've been able to and to put out there to the world because because people actually still are engaging with us in terms of creative people participants and audiences so whose responsibility is it to fund and support this kind of practice? We know that, you know, funding larger organisations, sort of flagship organisations in cities, doesn't necessarily mean that all those that need that support most are going to get it. I, I want to see uh, continuing emergency funding that may be required because we know that the creative cultural industries are not going to be back up and running as they were uh, before um, the coronavirus pandemic hit. And, and therefore, much like other sectors in our economy at the moment, is going to need really specific packages of support that is responsive and is tailored to needs of our sector. It's a very unique sector. It's, it's predominantly funded uh, by public funds um, for a kickoff. It's mainly actually funded by local authorities. Local authorities are the biggest giver to the arts outside of London. Um, than philanthropy or businesses or any other type of funding. And so we need to think about how any emergency funding comes in, um, does and follows strategies and long-term goals that our arts leading stakeholders and decision makers have, have decided upon. So I want to see more organisations like SBC being funded, you know, organisations that actually quite quietly in many cases, you've got a wonderful website and you do great comms and people are aware of a lot of the work that you do. 
what people aren't aware of is that 90% of your work is not seen except for the people who participate in it, um, except for those people that you engage with. You know, they're not service users. They're not just audiences. They're, not, they're, they're all sorts of different types of people that you engage with. They're all sort of stakeholders. And uh, a lot of that work isn't seen. And But you're digging right underneath. You're getting under the bonnet, I suppose, of the communities in which you're in, in a way that, frankly, no large organization can. It isn't possible for them to take the kind of deeply personal, interpersonal and intercultural dialogue. They just can't achieve that in, in the same way. And so if we're not funding organizations um, like yours and many others that are doing different types of work in different types of realms at the grassroots level, then we, we risk people losing their voice and we, we risk all of that soft, quiet work that goes on in communities being being lost. And then that just creates, you know, fracturing in society and compounds social problems that we have and all sorts of, of, of issues. One of the other things that I think we could do is for decision makers to devolve some of their decision making. So a bit like you do at SBC, quite naturally, you give up some of your curatorial power and your power to shape and your power to um, commission all the rest of it to the people that you're working with. And that has been really instinctive to everybody at SBC since really early on, um, that you were quite willing to give your platform to share the power that you're gifted with the platform that you're provided to others. I'd really like to see that happening at national level. So, for example, participatory or deliberative um, democracy processes. Could we have regional boards that involve service users, sanctuary seekers, a mixture of actual local members of the community, as well as local leaders and arts organisations who make choices, informed choices about um, which projects are coming up that they might like to fund? Yeah, citizens' assemblies could be a really great model through, through a process of sortition, which is a very boring technical thing, which selects people from a cross-reference of people in communities. They're all brought together in the same room to talk about what's important to them. And then you'd have arts organisations go and pitch to them about what their project is. So they'd be really informed and really up to date on what uh, the project is and what the outcomes would be. And then the communities themselves would actually decide where money uh, would be spent. I think that could, that could unlock some really exciting opportunities. And I believe that the voices of the people that you're working with would have more airtime um, as a result. Because I think people want to hear those stories. Because I think when Emily stands in front of somebody and explains what her project is about, Tanya, and what it means to her and her life story, within 10 minutes you want to watch that play. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So you've spoken about um, this beautiful um, sense of um, you didn't know where the door, the door was to even knock on it. And um, we've heard Emily speak about how the company helps people remember who they are and why it's really important that they have a platform, that it makes them feel that they can live again. It's extremely powerful um, ideas to sort of um, start off with as a theatre company. 
what was it that motivated you specifically to lean into this work with refugees and asylum seekers, which I think is how a lot of the theatre sector who know you will think about your your company and what you do really, really brilliantly. One of the things was learning about Yarlswood Immigration Detention Centre. This is back in 2012, 2013. And as activists, as highly political people, had never heard of immigration detention centres and didn't know how the UK government treats people who come here asking for safety. So that, in essence, is what when theatre should step in because this is this is how we generate empathy and this is how we let a more wide ranging sector of people know what's going on on our doorstep. Then meeting Emily through Refugee Council, you know, we, we'd asked uh, the wonderful Rose McCarthy, who's also on our steering group, if she could introduce us to somebody who would want to share their experiences in a show. And Rose was just like, oh, I know, I know the person you need to speak to. And we were introduced to Emily and we had a meeting and Emily came hard with the pitch. Like she was just someone that was instantly so exciting. And so, you know, you could feel the energy of someone who, I need to say this, get out of my way. And that's exactly why we're here. We want to use the skills that we have to support people to say things in the way that they want to say them and promote genuine listening across all of our audiences. So what that speaks to is uh, how open you are to um, a really pure form of collaboration in that sense that you were really open to whomever your collaborators might be, um, meeting them um, as an equal from from the very sort of first um, conversations that you might have about a piece of work. Emily, I want to ask you now or invite you to speak about what it's like or what the process has been like for you to work with Stand and Be Counted Theatre and, and what it's been like to be in the space of theatre as part of this group. First of all, because I had uh, lost the sense of who I was then when I met them, I was so shy and uh, thinking that they are going to reject me because I was used at being rejected in any door that I knocked on. But the moment they met me, they embraced me and they showed me the power of love instead of the love of power. To me, that was the most important thing in life. Because as a human being, if you show the power of love, regardless of who the person is, it shows that you are not a thirsty of, of being having that a love of power because you regard people as human beings. So when I started working with them, shockingly enough for me, I will admit to you, was for them to ask me questions and take those questions as something meaningful. I was like, wow, are there still some people like that, that they regard me as a person? And then day by day, by spending each day with them, I realized they just take me as one of them. And I just 
started being myself and uh, being freely talking about what I've been through and sharing with them and uh, feeling that sense of not being judged about whatever, what I have gone through and feeling that sense of being accepted as a holy as who I was at the time and uh, giving me the sense of yeah, this is could be the beginning of the future again. And uh, when I started the play with them, I felt like I was in the right platform because many things people, they didn't know about how, what the asylum seekers and the, sometimes some of the refugees, they go through. Apart from what they normally hear from the media, they do not give both sides of the story. So sort of the play that we had was giving them the both side of the story because most of it, it depends, it's got categories, but most of the media used to just put us in one bag as a commodities and treat us not as human beings, treat us as people who come and sponge, people who come and do this, people who come and do that, rather than knowing the reason behind. So SBC Theatre, it gave not only us the asylum seeker, the glimpse to the public what the asylum seekers go through when they are going through the process, or even if they've gone through the process, what are the hurdles they still have to uh, conquer ahead of them? I think as well, in that early part of the process, Rosie and I had been dealing with the kind of raw research material and had been speaking to people. And Rosie in particular had spent a lot of time in conversation with lots of different people who had lots of different perspectives about the process of detention or lived experiences of, of detention. Um, in this country and I think at that point um, along the journey where we met Emily it felt really um, it felt really easy in fact it didn't really feel like we made those decisions like of course we must have but it's difficult now to look back and see where those landmarks of those decision making um, moments were really because we, I feel like as a company, we're always led by what is happening in those collaborations. So before we sort of said we are looking for an for an actor to come and play this role, which was never really the agenda, um, it was more like what would happen if um, we got in a room together and spent some time exploring. And so in those really early stages, I really love to look back and reflect on that week, Emily, that you and I spent at, um, at, uh, yeah in Stockton upon at the ARC um, Art Centre there and we just spent a whole week just kind of asking each other questions and getting to know each other and we did a lot of singing in that week and we weren't really making creative decisions but of course we were because it was that collaborative process that we were sort of at that time in our in our process brave enough to sort of go we this is what we need right now there isn't a formula for making theatre in this way and so what happens in that room between a very very small number of collaborators then informs what becomes a full-scale touring piece of theatre work and it's kind of it's making me smile now hearing Emily talk about those early encounters when when we didn't know that we were going to end up with a with a twice nationally touring piece of work. <laughs> can you say a little bit more about how you got to the stage in the first place, if you can remember, of really wanting to do something which I think is very courageous, which is these collaborations with refugees and asylum seekers 
ensuring that um, they come first, essentially, and that their story comes first and that, that, in a sense, you make a show that absolutely speaks to the truth of their experience. It's no mean feat to sort of take something like that on. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you came to do that in the first place and what some of the challenges have been along the way? Like, we can't do this work without the people who have lived it. It doesn't matter how much research I do, I cannot ever tell that story the way Emily can. That is basic. That should be basic. The, the power of having Emily Taff on the stage talking about their experiences in the way that they want to as well, because you, you also have to be careful that you're not going, oh, it'd be great. Like, it'd be great if we could get people to hear about this. They really need to hear this. But you don't want to talk about that because you, you need to protect yourself. So it's finding the balance of total trust in the room we're all friends here we can get to know each other and share stuff nothing you share here automatically makes it into the show just because you're talking to a theatre maker you're talking to a friend and then together we will decide what we then show an audience because we don't owe them everything but we definitely are serving our performers and our audience yeah, I totally um, agree with what Rosie just said there. And it's kind of something that we have arrived at, the, the process for making theatre. I don't think it starts with making theatre at all. I think that's sort of like the last part <laughs> of what we do these days. And it's like, it is it is that journey of, of a collaborative process that has lots of different benefits and lots of different agendas within it absolutely whether it's about developing confidence whether it's about using these skills that we have as theatre makers to make space for for some kind of um communication and kind of exchange to happen but one of my favorite quotes that I use all the time is that cultural exchange isn't possible it's not possible for me to put myself in your shoes it doesn't matter how good the theatre is that's not something that we can do and I think a lot of the time perhaps some of our work is, is discussed in the kind of applied theatre or even dangerously in my view the theatre therapy area because that's not what we do and it's not that that work isn't brilliant and valuable and valid it's just not what we're trying to do it's, it might be described as socially engaged theatre perhaps it is about communication and expression and well-being rather than it being about sort of solving any particular problems and I think that the way that that happens is by making space by making opportunities for people to be creative in a particular space at a particular time and from that theatre is made. Most of our work doesn't doesn't end up in in becoming a piece of theatre so most of the work that we do across a week is very much kind of conversations and skill building and kind of educational programs it might end up being a short film, a documentary, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a, in a little while. But um, I think from from the moment of kind of knowing who we want to work with and 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 kind of holding on to our values as a company, that starting point we we just hold all the way through. And I think at any point um, during the process of making um, any of our work, if it 
if, if the next step isn't um, the easy one and, and we're kind of led by other partners or venues or organisations, we have to pull back and say, it doesn't now feel like we can make that next step. Actually, what we decided is that for whatever reason, it's going to become a series of concerts because we know that Emily is an amazing singer. And that could have been a choice that we could have gone down. And I think all the way through that, we just have to kind of hold really dear that use our process and trust that process and trust the people that we're working with. And then the, the outcomes, they often might take a little longer to kind of to get there um but we're not in the kind of manufacturing business in terms of you know making a sure product on we go on the shelf and then come back to it when we need to it's it's a, it's a very different process to that and i'm just kind of reflecting on what emily mentioned about the kind of first first meeting is that it's hard to kind of remember exactly why we knew but we just knew that that charm and that presence and energy in a room is you can't replicate that you can't replicate that i just kind of remember very vividly that the the, the second that we started to all think about that being the trajectory we just said how how should we therefore lead it how, how do we do this we, we we don't know that um but we know the people who do and, and that was emily and the people that um we met along that journey so i think it's it's really figuring out with them how it should be led and, and we'll facilitate that as best as best we can. Thank you. Um, and Hani, you've spoken very cogently about how you very much all feel that the the, the work of the company is not to be um, a kind of therapy company. But I'd really like to hear from you, Emily, about what you feel were the kind of the, the benefits to you really of um, opening yourself up and opening your heart up to that very courageous process. So I sort of took my emotion out of Emily and represent other women who didn't have a voice and become their voice as the SBC had given me that stage to be the voice of the voiceless. They gave me the chance as they were to me the voice when I didn't have a voice. Most of the time I felt like even though I'm telling my story, um, it's not only my story, it's other women's story. And at the time I was uh, two steps ahead of those women who were still at Yalswood. But at the back of my head, I knew that there were still women who were going through what I went through. So every time I was doing something, I wasn't only thinking of myself, I was thinking of others. I felt like, let me just do this and be out of ML and put on the public persona to do the play. Because I felt like all of us in our lives, we have that public mask, what we want people to see. But who is the real, real person? So by giving the real person behind those that what people they see for me was the chance and was the benefit not only for me for others that's amazing because it, it feels like uh, what you're describing there is a really sort of extraordinary process that you um galvanized which was to absolutely draw on your own experience but to step into the shoes of people who were incredibly close to you the, the other women I think that what you've just described is totally extraordinary that you found or you approached the work in that way. I'm really, really stunned. And I think it's a really uh, fascinating description of how we can access performance in a way or playing roles as a way to explore something that we have lived, mm -hmm. um, but in a way that may make us feel safer to really put the truth out there. And that's the very interesting thing, I think, about when we speak about truth in drama is 
is that often we're talking, well, we're always talking about through the lens of fiction in a way. And that um, it's very interesting, this relationship between truth and fiction, and that somehow just uh, thinking about the creation of a role or thinking about playing somebody else can somehow help you access the deeper truth, maybe about yourself. That's fascinating. I was going to mention as well, I, I think... And um, whilst the, the the work in the in the in the room and obviously the presentation of that is you know often serious because that's the kind of the, the the work that we're portraying, but I think that in the same way and this maybe in the same intensity, our our, our own our personalities and, and the way that we bring people together and, and it, it does become a really a really tight unit. And, and I think we we have as much fun um, outside of the room as we can. That is really helpful, I think, and and I hope that that is and it's very genuine. So it is as all kind of taking that pause afterwards and saying, okay what do we each need now do we need to take some time away because that's absolutely okay or actually do we need to kind of come together again and talk about some of these things or actually we're going to completely switch off to just kind of know that those those things are there if people need them we've had an amazing amount of fun on on all the tours of 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 shows that we've done is that you know sometimes it doesn't feel like a lot of fun when you're kind of packing the van and driving from newcastle to london but actually if you're with a group of people who you really care about and love you're going to be all right and you're probably going to stop at the services for two hours and just chat and you'll get there when you need to get there. So I think alongside all of this is um, a really kind of clear sense of we will also have a lot of fun doing this because it's really important. Yeah, just I think just building on that, I think, and I think this is what SBC do really well is they create, you, they don't just create like a working a working team, they create a family and you can really feel, you really trust the people that you're with. So you do this incredible and draining and really like emotionally charged work, but you have within that space, the freedom to speak to people, but also the freedom that you know that if you're not feeling a hundred percent or you feel that, you know, what you've just done is really taking you down like a really dark path. Um, mentally that is, you can, you can be comfortable enough to say like, look, I'm not feeling right. And someone, or not even someone, everyone will want to talk to you and kind of support you and, and take that time to make sure that you're all right. And that's exactly how it was on the tour where, you know, if someone had a bad day, we'd all be there for that person. And I think it, it's, it all comes down to the fundamentals of creating a family rather than creating a working company or, do you know what I mean? That's all secondary and the family's first. A really practical thing about the process of putting a team together for any project that we work on is like seemingly a bit messy, really, because it's not like we go, what we really need for this project is a choreographer or what we really need for this project is someone to offer this particular expertise. It's, it's way more about the, the, the people on such a human level that it takes quite a long time for those kinds of relationships to evolve. Hence why John was sort of expressing about how a project sort of evolves from kind of an idea that that starts with a with a collaborative process and then becomes something else so there's never re- you don't really find yourself in a situation where you're working with people who 
you haven't already built up quite a significant respectful relationship with, which I think is quite unique and my absolutely my favorite thing about working with this particular company because it just feels like such a gift but equally we couldn't make the work that we do any of it without that being there as a kind of ethos or like a a, a practical thing in terms of time the amount of time that it takes to kind of um, put a team together so when we were making where we began for example we'd had a conversation with Taff in the bar of Camden People's Theatre after he saw the show Tanya and then that one conversation sparked what became not one but two <laughs> brilliant projects and but also there's a lot of stuff in the middle there too that, that we talk about less frequently that is you know the, the way that we thought about what kind of a process we might like to have and the the four weeks that we spent living together in Doncaster where we sort of swapped stories and ate together and cooked for each other and spent hours and hours in the studio sometimes working really hard on what felt like very theatrical content and sometimes just thinking who are we as people and actually asking questions is like the biggest thing. Let's talk about Taft's project now. Does someone want to just describe what that production was and how the relationship started? So just as I was about to enter university for my final year, I received the letter when my family received their letters basically saying that they had all been granted their, their appeal claim. They all had um, visas that would allow them to obviously stay in the country. Um, whereas I had received a letter basically saying that I was to be deported back to Zimbabwe. So yeah, it was it was a massive shock really to the system. I was 19, like I said, just, just like any ordinary kid really. And to sort of receive a letter that was saying that it was going to remove me from, from my family and the world that I'd created here, having lived here since I was 12. It was just truly devastating. So I, I wasn't able to study, so I had to leave university or rather got forced out. And then there was just all the, the, the additional weight that the, the government, they try to pressurise you with to try and force you to make your own choice to leave the country. So they... On the letter, they, you know, they said that landlords will be notified um, of my status and basically won't be able to rent. They're going to notify the banks to basically close my accounts. They're going to notify like the NHS, so I won't be able to access the, the healthcare system. And if I do, I have to pay a charge. All of that and so much more. So it really created a world in which I truly felt that I wasn't a part of society and I couldn't. I couldn't just live a normal life because so much like every sort of normal normalized action or, 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 or sort of any, any normal thing that I wanted to do, I couldn't really do. I wasn't able to volunteer. I wasn't able to do to work or anything like that. So I was truly just taken away from society. So I was in a really, really sort of dark place um, mentally. And when my girlfriend went to go and watch Tanya and I kind of knew the, the sort of idea of of what it was about, I was a bit hesitant at first of going out because like I had truly sort of self-isolated my myself in in sort of my flat. Like I'd just locked myself in in, in my room and in, in my flat. And I didn't really venture out much. And I, I wasn't really in, engaged with day-to-day society just because of just straight straight embarrassment but also you know I didn't feel like I said that feeling of you being completely sucked from society I just felt like I couldn't really 
be involved in anything or want it want to be involved in anything but I went to I went to go watch the play and and like I said it would just truly I think I cried I think it was like the first couple of minutes and like you could tell straight away that this wasn't just someone reiterating some lines this was someone really talking from their own experience like you could just see the, the truth and, and and the realness coming out of her really struck a chord with me and and, and it just made me think realize that I wasn't alone you know, and, the, and that there are other people going through this and there is a platform for, for us to, to share our stories to, for others to hear it and to, to know that there's this world that is right on our doorstep that we completely don't know about. So yeah, I just naturally, I just wanted to just like talk to them um, and, and just kind of like tell them how, how much of an impact that play had on me. And I just wanted to thank them and I wanted to, kind of just say keep doing what you're doing and then yeah we just we just kept in contact and we we got to a stage where they wanted to tell my story and and not only just tell it but allow me to sort of be involved in the process of making it but also performing in it which for me was just something that I didn't think would ever happen um I just like I said I just wanted them to know that they're doing amazing work and I, and I want them to continue doing what they're doing but I was really fortunate that they wanted me to be involved in telling my own story and kind of doing what Tanya did and, and really opening people's eyes to, to, to a system that our government is using. That's where, where I was and sort of my situation and the background behind my story and, and, and kind of those themes and those issues that I lived through were things that we carried through um, in, in the development process of where we began. So we've, we've spoken about these fantastic plays that you've made. And now, of course, we find ourselves in this um, absolutely, I dare I use the word, unprecedented scenario uh, with a global pandemic and um, oh she said the word the word <laughs> <laughs> so what's it been like this year um because obviously everyone this year is going through an existential crisis but we're talking here about your work with um the most vulnerable groups in the whole of society and as we know the lens can very quickly shift off um, these groups in a way that really can present life and death scenarios um, for people who are extremely vulnerable. I would imagine your work this year has been extremely important and I'd really like to hear about what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just in terms of the adventure we've been having with the films that we've been doing, we worked recently on a documentary with Tafatwa and uh, that was an amazing incredible process and journey and that was pretty much a follow-up from where we began so having spoken to Taf and, and realized his story I really quickly became enamored with what his life up until that moment had been and uh, you know the incredible journey that it had through the play as well so we decided to embark on that journey of um, shooting the aftermath of what happened yeah let's let's do a film which which sort of paints that picture to people who may not realize that this is still an ongoing journey um, and what happened afterwards the other project that we're working on as well is uh, called Have Your Passport Ready and it is a virtual experience about two asylum seekers who moving through the hostile environment and trying to adjust to life here in Britain but obviously coming across these 
different environments where they encounter so many barriers as they just try to achieve a normal life. Something as simple as maybe going to the shop or or catching the bus and barrier of communication. A lot of uh, aggressions, a lot of passive aggressions being given to them, even though they, they don't deserve it rather than just being helped. So we thought we'd explore that environment, but place it in an environment where people experience that firsthand from the firsthand view. So it's it sort of works like a game, but it's also a short film that sort of tells people about that. For me, as a as a professional, I guess it's just it's half said before. Feels like a family, feels really close, and it it also feels like you can be yourself. Uh, you can bring your creativity, you can bring yourself into something. And so I think for me, as a as a creative, as a filmmaker, as a designer, I think that's something I've I've really felt strongly that I could be myself and I could bring something of myself and and have it contribute to something that is really important. It's worth saying as well, Smart is another artist in a similar way to Emily and Taff, who has just gear changed the company's direction. Firstly, I'm so glad that we met you at this time because in a pandemic without you, I honestly don't know what we would have done. But in the sense of being able to be agile and responsive and bring in these new skills, that is not something that we will let go. Like even if COVID goes away and it's all back to whatever normal is, this has massively changed the way that we will make work because we know all these many different ways that we can reach people and engage with people and make accessible work because of the type of stuff that Smart does. And that's something that I'm really proud of. We are flexible and we are led by, you know, we've never conducted an interview to um, make our team bigger. And that's not because we only work with people we know because we don't. There's something in the chemistry of people and that shared mission that everybody here has. We always just know that we met Munya in a queue. Ruth has an excellent story of how we got to know her. There is just something in the ways that we meet people that are like, yeah, these are the people to hold on to. This is what will push us forward. We need to hear from you, Ruth. Come on. (laughs) I'm always asking people if they have any connections. And I actually met John through my hairdresser. So from there, I researched his background, which brought me to SBC Theatre. And I was so inspired by their work. So I arranged a phone call with John, who was super up for it. And We had the best conversation about all things theatre and I knew that I'd come upon something really special and I say something special in terms of the company's intentions and values but also special in its determination to open its doors to people like me who have got a lot to give and just need a chance to show it. That's amazing. So there's there's such a sort of strong commitment um, and has been from the start to this talent development really um, in all kinds of people but most especially in those who don't know where the door is to go back to that lovely expression from the start of this conversation to anybody listening to this podcast who feels like that actually thinking oh how do I break into this really 
difficult sector that just feels full of barriers and doors and how do I even find the door in the first place so I'm wondering now if those of you who were part of the company at the start could just speak to what navigating those early years were like there's lots of things to this in terms of kind of the talent development program and work of the company is that there is there is a structure and we have done lots of really brilliant projects with Leeds Beckett University Sheffield Hallam and kind of through education programs that, that exist that we have built over over a period of time which is co-curating projects with uh, with students and, and, and with younger people and then there's a sort of open door which is through our website and our kind of um, our style of saying if you feel like you can connect to some of the stories that we want to build a platform and create then come and talk to us there might not necessarily be a job right there and then because that's not necessarily not quite how we work in terms of the the project to project funding but what we can say is that we will we will talk to you we will give you um some of our experiences and we might give you some other contacts and kind of hopefully try and figure out a way for you to um to take the next potential step building on what ruth said and she's incredibly modest but what, what she did was graduated you know one one minute and then was just talking to me and i think that 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 shows absolute courage and and, um, and bravery is not the right word because it's just someone who's got the appetite and desire to pick up the phone and say i think let's not worry too much right now about hierarchies particularly right now in the world let's really strip back any kind of hierarchy because actually what we're all trying to do is trying to build this thing back up together and it will need all of us it will need people who are senior in particular organizations and it will need young graduates with with desire and positive attitude so all of us are important the kind of rebuilding of the the kind of landscape and i think some people who show that commitment and hunger that's going to get you a long way and um send us an email might not necessarily land you a big a big monetary gig uh, right now but where and when there are opportunities we will find them because as we've said all the way through this uh, this podcast, is that our next project hasn't been made yet. And our next project will probably be made by someone who we don't know right now. There's a good chance from the history of our company about the way that projects are built is that we probably don't know who the lead person in that project is right now. And we, we don't kind of go out searching for people. It's very much a conversation of someone's interest and desires and commitments in the way that Khaled and Mohammed are interested in game design and adventures and therefore they're the next lead, lead artists in our project because we feel that we we can craft and facilitate an exciting adventure with them so i would i would hope and say to people that it, it is it is tough at the moment in the industry but if you have the, the desire and you have some skills and you're ready to learn and be ambitious then then reach out to as many companies who you like the ethics of the values of and also the work of let them know you're around as a graduate myself i heard people say this and i like rolled my eyes or thought yeah right you're just saying that because you're on a podcast and you want to sound good but it's a genuine offer and it's really important it's part of our job we've got to a certain place it is our responsibility to make sure theater continues and we can do that by finding these exciting people that are coming up that are interested not in exactly the same thing as us perhaps but want to do similar work and we can help no one told me what an artistic director was or did and I ended up being one and like Esther we've had this conversation you know I've been one for 10 years now and every day I'm like what is my job? What do I do? And if you said to me, if you ever start asking yourself that, 
you're not doing it right because that's <laughs> part of the job. Like we push and get better and figure it out and be flexible and do what it takes and and to be able to have Ruth with me seeing all of that stuff happen is really exciting because I think she's she's the one to watch and there's loads of people out there yeah that is our job so email us rosie at sbctheatre.co.uk I know I say this a lot but the revolution is coming theatre revolution is on its way it's exciting it is Esther don't give me that face <laughs> I mean look I've been at this for longer than you so I, you know I must be uh I must be an even greater believer, Rosie. Yes. Right? <laughs> Why else would I still be doing this? <laughs> oh my God, fantastic! What a lovely conversation. What rich, layered work has been happening in the past um, this year with um, COVID. I think you've done an absolutely extraordinary job in navigating that, and it's great to hear about the way you're sort of leaning into the digital more now but fundamentally it's just great that you're such an accessible company that wears its heart on its sleeve and is is so committed I think to so many of the most um, vulnerable people who are just trying to kind of get by um, and how did um, Emily put it earlier feel that they're you know feel that their lives are worth platforming in in the most um, simple context really so all power to you and um, long may you stand and be counted and bring so many other wonderful people with you We hope you enjoyed this seventh episode of Culture Plan B. It was recorded, produced and edited by Stand and Be Counted. If you have an idea for a guest episode, you can contact us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. The series credits for Culture Plan B are that the editors and sound mixers are Ian Dickinson and George Dennis. The music is from Don't Tell Me by Conrad Murray with Kate and Nate from BAC's Beatbox Academy. Communication support from Antonio Goddard with thanks to David Bellwood for helping us to make the series more inclusive and accessible. And in addition to David, big thanks to our transcribers for all the episodes so far. That's Hannah Gibbs, Julie Osman, Kate Donachy and Stand and Be Counted. Original artwork by John Balser and the producer and creator is Matthew Dunster. Don't tell me how to fit, don't tell me how to spit, don't tell me how to love, don't tell me how to fit, don't tell me how to do, don't tell me how to miss, don't tell me how to be, don't